Welcome to episode 111 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Monik Suri, founder and CEO of Thermo. But first, thank you so much for welcoming me back. After a few month pause to enjoy my daughter's wedding, sell our home and move from San Diego to Vancouver, Washington, and enjoy a bit of traveling, I released episode 110 with Lawrence Kotlikoff, author of 20 books and economics professor at Boston University. The episode set all kinds of download records. Again, thank you. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Monica's founder and CEO of Therma, www.hellotherma.com, a technology startup whose mission is to help protect our food, health, and planet. Therma builds safety and sustainability tools to eliminate food waste, improve energy efficiency, and reduce refrigerant emissions, protecting consumers and combating climate change. Therma is deployed across restaurants, retailers, distributors, and manufacturers worldwide with leading brands, including McDonald's, Starbucks, 7-Eleven, and Marriott Hotels. Monik co-founded the Governance Lab, GovLab, an innovation center at NYU that develops technology solutions to improve government. He's been recognized amongst the top 100 Harvard alumni in technology, and he's previously held positions at global investment firm D.E. Shaw & Company and the White House National Economic Council. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Monik Suri, founder and CEO at Therma. Monik, welcome to The Climate Champions. Lee, it's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What got you engaged to battle climate change? Being a Californian and uh, living in the Bay Area for the past seven years, it was hard to ignore some of the changes that we've been seeing across both California, but also around the country and around the world. I experienced this firsthand a few years back when I was traveling in the wine country with my wife on an anniversary trip, and we ended up literally driving through the wildfires. We ended up uh, staying in the Napa, Sonoma area at a time when one of the worst wildfires hit. And that experience, we were driving through at 2 a.m. in the morning with fire burning on both sides of the highway. I've never experienced anything like that in my life. My parents uh, live in the Central Valley in a town called Fresno, where I grew up. And wildfires got to within 30 miles of our house two years ago. That's the house I grew up in. The broader climate problem and climate crisis has always been on the minds of people from my generation, because uh, around the time I was coming of age in college, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth had come out, and people talked about this as a problem. But we, I think, growing up thought this was a problem for future generations to solve. And in the last few years, it's become clear that this is something we absolutely must tackle ourselves. We can't punt. We can't hope that in 20 or 30 years, the next generation will figure this out. That, that was news to me. One of the moments, there have been a few, 
but I would say yeah. it really brought it home a few years ago in a way that, that made the salience even more significant for me. Yeah. In 2003 and in 2007, we had fires here in San Diego. And each time we were told it was a once in a hundred year fire happened <laughs> in the five years. Yeah. So we, we realized something had changed. What are your personal drivers for mitigating climate change? Again, kind of taking it back to growing up and childhood, I had the experience early on of traveling between countries and seeing how different life could be in different parts of the world. My parents are from India and came to the U.S. in the early 80s, and we went back to live in Delhi, where my grandparents lived, when I was seven. And I lived there for three years, from seven to ten. And we would go back every year to visit my grandparents. And seeing what life was like in Delhi and having gone you know, every year, I, I can remember the fact that you couldn't see the sun uh, on many days, the fact that you couldn't breathe uh, the air while running outside. You know, It's very hard to go for a run in Delhi because of the air pollution and the smog. Those were experiences early on that made me wonder about what was going to happen when more and more people around the world started living the way we can afford to live in the US. And so I think I always wondered, how are we gonna sustain our way of life when every person has two or three cars, when every person is eating red meat and protein-rich diets, when every person is blasting air conditioning and running energy-intensive devices without thinking about it? And knowing that countries like India were out there and were, were developing, uh, I studied international relations at Harvard College, studied international relations at Cambridge in my master's, focused on India and China. That was my, my focus of my undergrad and master's thesis. And I think it was pretty clear when you look at the math that when at two and a half billion people, and then you've got uh, developing markets around Latin America and Africa, when that whole population around the world is starting to modernize and live in increasingly resource-intensive ways, there's no way we can kind of sustain the quality of life we have in a place like Northern California or uh, frankly anywhere. And that's, that's when the experience of seeing the air in Delhi year over year and seeing how hard it is to, to breathe and to live in now really brought these kinds of problems home. Again, kind of comes back to, to childhood. Yeah, like worry for the rest of the planet. How are they gonna deal with it? We might in this country have enough money to figure out how to get through it maybe but in other places that you've seen, not so much. Exactly. And I think in the last few years, even that illusion that we would somehow be able to get through it unscathed started to shatter, you know, because when you look at the pictures from a couple of years ago, taking over the Berkeley Hills or the Oakland Hills, many people might think that's New Delhi, but that's actually the Bay Area. You know, you couldn't see the sun for a whole day uh, in August two years ago. It was crazy. It was a year or two ago where the whole Western United States, I'm not even going to say just the West Coast, because it went way far inland. It looked like there was nothing but fire when you looked at Google Maps. It's crazy. It's crazy, and it's happening. I think the New York Times uh, cover story showed extreme weather patterns across the country yet again, You know, another year like that. So sometimes I think we do have to live through things. You have to touch, no pun intended, you have to touch the fire to know it's hot. You know, I feel that now this issue has become very real in a way that was hard to imagine even 10 years ago. Just the lived experience over the last several years has made it unavoidable. For many people I talked to, they've had a similar uh, reckoning, you know, similar realization. Luckily, a lot of the legwork to do something about it has been done over the last 20 years because there were people that already saw that it was going to be a problem. 
Absolutely. And I commend everyone who's been working on sustainability for decades. And I certainly saw many of those people from the standpoint of an academic when I was an undergrad or a grad student. And I had a chance to work early on in my career uh, at an investment firm called D.E. Shaw for the gentleman who ran the firm. D.E. Shaw is one of the largest investment firms globally, and they had one of the biggest clean tech portfolios in the 2000s. They had offshore wind, they had uh, wind turbine, they were investing in clean concrete. And I got to work in some of those transactions. That was my first job out of school, was doing private equity, growth PE. And so I got to see early entrepreneurs and early investors taking on some of these um, challenges around renewables, around the energy transition. But the, you know, the macro environment in terms of the regulatory frameworks, the government subsidies, the cost of fossil-based fuels made it very hard for those businesses to take off in the way that they're starting to take off now. And so, yeah, I do, I do really appreciate and admire folks that understood the sustainability, urgency of sustainability and the climate crisis uh, before many others uh, got there. When you meet people that still don't understand the threat that we're living through right now and what could happen, how do you convince them? You know, it's hard. It is hard. I think that we live in a, uh, sometimes it feels like we live in a post-factual worldly uh, where everyone has their own interpretation of the world. And it's very hard to talk, you know, about issues that are, that are politicized and loaded without feeling like you're talking past each other. So you can cite the science, one can cite the IPCC reports, uh, one can cite the kind of general scientific community's consensus. But I generally point to personal experience. I talk about my experience growing up in India and the US and seeing the air get degraded year over year in Delhi. I, mean, I lived in China for a year in Beijing and Shanghai back in 2007, 2008. I talk about the kinds of development challenges I saw firsthand in terms of the speed at which natural resources were being consumed. I watched an island converted from agrarian land to one of the largest shipbuilding sites in six months. It was incredible, but also disturbing. And I talk about what's happening in places like Western US communities, which are affected by mudslides and floods and wildfires. I think ultimately everyone has to find their own basis for believing, whether that's something you've lived through or something that you've heard about or read about. But I do think the more we can talk about the problem and make the solutions realistic and real, the more we can get there. Well, that's a really nice setup. Talking about making solutions real, can you talk about what you and what Therma does to help mitigate climate change? Absolutely. It's a question I spend a lot of time thinking about as a founder and, and the CEO at Therma. We're building smart refrigeration technologies to help enable cleaner cooling. So when you think of refrigeration, most people think, well, why do I have to worry about that? It's been around for 100 years. It works fine. I've got one in my house. It turns out that refrigeration is a huge and growing driver of emissions. There are around 90 million refrigeration units in the commercial world and around 1.5 billion refrigeration units in the consumer world. They cause emissions in three ways. Uh, refrigerators spoil product when they go down, and they go down more often than we think because of power outages and grid failures, equipment issues, and human error. And so there's a huge amount of preventable waste and spoilage that happens in refrigerated environments that we think we can eliminate. Secondly, refrigeration uses a lot of electricity. Around 15% of electricity in the US is used by refrigeration which is a huge single source. 
and anything that uses that much electricity and is growing uh, in a time when energy is becoming increasingly expensive and resource intensive, we have to find ways to make more efficient. And it turns out there's a lot of unnecessary cooling, a lot of overcooling going on because refrigerations run fairly dumb. It's plugged in, a thermostat is set to a certain set point, and then people leave it that way for, for years. That's a fairly uh, 20th century way of using an asset. And third, refrigeration has an emissions profile caused by the refrigerants that leak. Refrigerants are the chemicals that go into refrigeration to enable cooling to happen. Well, it turns out that those chemicals are ultra warming. They have between 1,000 and 11,000 times more warming effect than CO2. So they're ultra warming when they get into the atmosphere and they get released when refrigeration goes down and at the end of life. And so in total, between product waste, energy waste, and refrigerant waste, refrigeration is responsible for four to 5% of all global warming. That's a big number. And so when we think about that and consider that refrigeration is growing as a sector rapidly, it's growing at around 15% compound annual growth rate. That's because everyone in the developing world wants to have refrigeration and refrigeration products. They want fruits and vegetables. Everyone wants proteins, dairy. Also in another context, in the pharma context, drugs and vaccines and blood and plasma. All of that stuff, which is an understandable desire for growing middle classes, all of that requires refrigeration. And so there's a huge growth in the refrigeration world, what, what's known as the cold chain happening around the world. The utility industry has known this for a long time. That's why the first Energy Star products were refrigerators that utility companies would give rebates for in order to improve energy efficiency. And I think behind HVAC and pool pumps and now electric vehicles, refrigerators are it, right? And everybody has one, at least one. So what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it to help it? Yeah, we use technology. We use a combination of technologies to make refrigeration smarter. We've developed an Internet of Things sensor, an IoT sensor that can monitor refrigeration wirelessly. That's hard to do. Turned out that Wi-Fi and Bluetooth-based sensors couldn't get a signal out of the inside of a refrigerator easily. The side of the refrigeration unit acted like a Faraday cage. It blocked the signal. And so you couldn't get wireless sensors to work until recently. We use a new type of technology that takes advantage of long-range radio or LoRa to get signal out. With wireless monitoring, we can start doing things with the data. So now we use the data layer to look for trends and patterns. We look for examples of overcooling or instances where things might be unnecessarily wasting product. For example, we had a customer that was having a spike in refrigeration temperature every Friday between 1 and 3 a.m. It was a 70 location burger chain. It turned out that someone was coming in and leaving the door propped open Friday in the middle of the night while they were doing inventory delivery, just leaving the door open for two hours and burning shelf life and burning energy. And so with the data, we can start identifying inefficiency and waste. And ultimately, we can also think about ways to catch refrigeration downtime before it happens. So we can start predicting equipment failure. And so what we're doing essentially is building IoT sensors, data tools, and optimization uh, recommendations engines. And all of that allows you to take an asset that's historically been hard to monitor and make it smarter and more efficient. Similar to a a Nest thermostat or an Ecobee thermostat, which have been around for a while in the consumer HVAC space. We're doing this in commercial refrigeration. Other than sensing those type of things, do you interact with the grid to know when there's more renewable energy out there or less and try to time when you cool versus when you don't based on carbon data? 
absolutely starting to do that. That question is so well timely because in 2022, we're starting to move into a new layer of products. So for the last two years, we've been building out our monitoring footprint. Now we're starting to work on improving the energy consumption and the way in which energy is consumed by taking advantage of the fact that refrigeration doesn't have to be run 24-7. So it turns out that when energy is cheaper or cleaner, you can pre-cool or load shift and run refrigeration at times of day that are more affordable and also less intensive to the climate. We're just starting to do that. We're doing that in a few test environments now where we're pre-cooling and load shifting. We're also working with some utilities on demand response programs that pay consumers of energy to reduce their load when the grid gets stressed. And that could help alleviate grid failure and, of course, reduce the need for grids to take on backup power or peaker, peaker plants, which are super resource intensive and expensive. And so by taking a view on monitoring and building a solution that can get much more effective and much more reliable data on what's going on, that opens up the possibility of turning refrigeration on and off or up and down when energy is cleaner and cheaper. That's historically been very hard to do with refrigeration because no one had good monitoring. And so who's going to turn off refrigeration and run the risk of spoiling product or, or damaging quality? And now with good monitoring, it opens up really interesting opportunities with energy optimization. So we're just getting going on that, but it's, it's a great, well-timed question. 12 years ago, I led a team, the Smart Grid team at San Diego Gas and Electric, and we put a 10-year plan together, and it had this technology on the plan. And at some point, I just gave up because it wasn't happening in the market. So I really wish you luck. I think there's a lot of benefit that can happen if we can really nail it and make it easy and super simple and safe to use. So, so glad to hear that. And I think it's actually um, illuminatingly the story you just told. Everyone says that technology innovation should happen overnight, but the reality is it takes longer and costs more, uh, you know, inevitably. These ideas are not necessarily new, but the technology is finally emerging to enable some of these ideas to actually take, take off. I'm happy to say that the reception has been really positive in the last two years to Thermo. You're a small company and the pandemic happened and it's still happening. How is that affecting the company and you? It was a wild couple of years. It's been a, a very volatile couple of years. We started working on Thermo six months before the pandemic started uh, in the winter of 2019. We went through an accelerator that was sponsored by BMW and Mini out of Brooklyn. It was a hardware climate accelerator. We built our first MVPs there. We started commercializing in early 2020, and we were selling into the food supply chain, into restaurants and convenience stores. That's pretty quick. It was pretty quick. I mean, we, we've been working on, on uh, food quality and safety for a few years prior with another company, another product. But the pandemic almost took us out. The timing was such that we were raising capital in early 2020, and we had a term sheet in February of 2020, and then COVID hit, and suddenly no one wanted to invest in a company that was building a new tool to sell to restaurant chains <laughs> at a time when every single restaurant and hospitality brand was shutting down for indefinite timing. So it was a really, really difficult environment to fundraise. We were able to get around closed in April of 2020. It allowed us to grow the Therma footprint. We actually really struggled to figure out where to sell Therma in the summer of 20. And we found that quick serve restaurants, quick QSR uh, restaurants had really strong drive-through business. 
And because of their success in summer of 2020 with drive-through and takeout, they were still growing and they were still operating. So we started selling exclusively to QSR, chains like McDonald's, Taco Bell, Wendy's, Burger King, Pizza Hut, Domino's. We signed those kinds of folks up on Therma in the summer and fall of 2020. Terrific response from, from the market, which led us to say, okay, let's lean into this. And that, that increased our, our confidence that the product actually had legs. We ended up growing the footprint of the customer base uh, into other segments in the winter of 20 and, and spring of 21, and we raised another round. And around that time, a number of folks started to take notice about the cold chain. So because of the pandemic, many people who had never heard of the cold chain started hearing about food distribution and food cold storage warehouses because of all the e-commerce and online grocery and food delivery. And also because these new mRNA vaccines were coming out that were super temp sensitive. And so 2020 did a special on the cold chain in I think, September of 2020 or October of 2020. And a dozen investors reached out saying, hey, I heard you're working on the cold chain, helping it, making it more efficient. Like we want to get involved. And so the timing was just unimaginable. We almost didn't take off because of the, the pandemic. And then we started to get a lot of interest because many locations were shut. And as a result, because they had less staffing and they were closed more often, they needed remote monitoring. And so they were more interested in a solution that could give them visibility to their locations. And then with the vaccine focus around cold chain, I think the broader investor community started to take note and realize oh, the refrigeration world actually needs a lot of help. We're about 70 people now, still a small team based in the Bay Area. And we're still early stage, but I'm happy to say we've gone from 100 sensors to close to 10,000 over the last 18 months. And we're trying to get to 100,000 sensors over the next couple of years. So it's been a very uh, dynamic environment to build a startup in. You know, I think we've tried to stay responsive to what the world is telling us. And climate in the background has become even more significant. So there's also, uh, amidst the pandemic, I think the focus around the, the cold chain has taken on even more significance because we've started telling the story about cooling and how much of an emissions problem it is. And that's something that very few people knew, including myself. I had no realization that, that refrigeration and HVAC were such big drivers of global warming. And so we've been celebrating the possibility of clean cooling and alongside this. It seems when you started, the wind was at your back because you were gonna help the climate and it was the solution in that domain. And then the pandemic scared people off, but just for a few months, and since then, it's really blown the wind stronger because takeout became a big thing and the vaccine, it's actually helping to push your technology forward. It is. It is. In a way that was totally unpredictable. I mean, I could never have imagined. I think the world has moved in ways that are totally unpredictable. But one thing I do appreciate is that people seem to be more focused on public problems in a way that was you know, hard to get people to appreciate. I've always had an interest around public policy. I studied uh, international relations and political science in college and grad school. I went to Harvard for law school, went to work in government uh, as a junior guy uh, doing economic policy in the Obama administration. And I got into tech because I thought there were ways to build tech for good. I met the deputy CTO, Beth Novick, in the first Obama White House, and she convinced me that we could build technology to solve public problems. And so I joined her when she left government to start a center at NYU and MIT where she teaches. And that's how I got into tech. It was always to build technology for problems that matter beyond just selling more ads or selling more widgets. And so I think that if anything, COVID and the climate, the twin crises of our time, I think have forced people to realize, hey, we have huge issues we need to tackle. Let's take these things seriously, whether it's public health 
or sustainability and, and put our lives and our energy to work. And I'm amazed by the kind of talent that's flowing into these problems now. So it's been a, it's been a, a roller coaster. There's two things I wanted to follow up on. One is you said you didn't know what cold chain was. And the second is you said we were already working on food things. Can you talk about both of those? Absolutely. So uh, when I started working on technology with Beth and uh, the team that we built at the GovLab, the governance lab at NYU, uh, we were working on compliance and regulation, ways to make technology and deploy technology to improve law and government, two of these big sectors of the economy that are still run like it's 1950. Beth was, a, as she jokes, a recovering lawyer like me. We're both former attorneys, the best kind. And I left the GovLab to start a company called CoInspect, Collaborative Inspect, which was a compliance-based approach to improving the food supply chain. And the idea was to replace pen and paper with mobile workflow and with structured data. And we started working on the food supply chain because Chipotle had this big food safety crisis right around the time we were getting going. And so we were looking at compliance problems and said, wow, the food industry is massive and has a huge amount of safety and quality workflow. And it's all done on, on, on paper clipboards. Let's replace those with structured data. And so CoInspect was a mobile app that we scaled to around 5,000 locations between 2015 and 2019. And my co-founder, Aaron Cohen, had been with me at the GovLab. He was the third co-founder of the GovLab with Beth and myself. So after Scale and CoInspect, we were watching users using our mobile app. And we were looking at their workflow, trying to figure out where we could improve the product. And it turned out that one of the things that folks have to check a lot is the temperature of refrigerated product. That's a huge source of safety and quality. The temperature conditions have to be checked multiple times a day. And so as we were watching users using our mobile app to check the temperature four to eight times a day, one of my colleagues looked at me and said, I think we can build a sensor for that. I don't think we should be using a mobile app to make people check stuff four to eight times a day. That can't be the best way to solve that. Just an alert, right? Exactly. And so uh, my, that colleague of mine is now our CTO, Andrew Hager. Andrew was our head of engineering at the time. And he had a unique background in this regard. Andrew had actually, he's, you know, he's in his early 40s now, but in his 20s, he had taken a year off from being an engineer to go and get trained as a chef at the Culinary Institute of America up in Napa. So he had actually gone to chef school and had gone to work at a high-end restaurant in Tokyo as a chef. And then he came back to tech and became an engineer again. But he'd had this experience working in restaurants in his early uh, formative years. And so Andrew... Was, uh, he, the other thing about him is that he, he built uh, sensors and worked on hardware on the side. He has a passion for IoT and for hardware. So Andrew was with me in the field. We were watching users using our mobile app in, in the summer of 2019. And he said, I think we can use a sensor. And there's a new type of long-range radio that can get a signal out of, of refrigeration, I think. And so that's when we started working on temperature, humidity, energy, remote monitoring application, which became Thermo. That's the acronym. That's, that's awesome. That's how Thermo was born. And that was the fall of 19. Yeah, that's the story. And as we started putting this Thermo sensor into the, into the world, we had customers signing up for it. And we asked them, what do you like about it? And it turned out that it wasn't primarily the fact that it was helping them improve compliance and food safety, though that was a benefit. What really motivated them was the ability to catch refrigeration failures and prevent food waste and food spoilage and figure out when they were overcooling. And so we discovered that the refrigeration environment was a huge source of waste and inefficiency. And at that time, one of my investors from CoInspect reached out to me, a guy named Chuck Templeton, 
Chuck is a climate investor who was the founder of OpenTable and did really well when he sold OpenTable. He runs a food and climate fund now, and he lives in Marin. And Chuck called me and said, you should check out Project Drawdown. This new product you built, it's not a compliance product. I think it might be a climate product. Check out Project Drawdown. Now, Project Drawdown is a nonprofit that looks at climate change and studies solutions. So I, I looked at the annual report. Solution number four out of 80 was reducing food waste. And solution number one out of 80 was refrigerant reduction. So suddenly we were like, oh my God, this is much more of a climate issue and a sustainability solution than purely compliance and safety. So that's that's really how we started. That was two a little over two years ago. That's how we stumbled into it and realized, wow, this is a much bigger problem that we can tackle. When you look at the future 20, 30 years out, how do you think the human race is going to fare with regard to climate change? I'm an optimist. I think I get that from my father. And I do think that humans as a collective are resilient. I think that we have the ability to solve the very problems we create. I believe that we're going to have to make some collective decisions that are not easy about both our societal structure and social choices, but also consumer behavior and personal choices will have to shift. I think we're going to have to embrace uh, new ways of solving old problems and new ways of existing, whether that means being smarter about the resources we use or changing how we use resources or what resources we use. And I think there's going to be a whole set of innovation needed, as well as changes on the regulatory and policy level, and ultimately also advocacy and activism. I think all of those combined, technical innovation fueled by capital and the capital uh, imperative, regulatory and policy shifts enabled by good governance, and people taking note and making changes, I think we will figure out a way to alleviate warming enough to mitigate any catastrophic, unavoidable consequences. And I think we'll find a new normal. But I think it's going to be hard and require lots and lots of focus and effort. I'm excited that you feel that way. Every single thing you talked about is an extremely difficult problem that we as a human race don't do very well. The technology one we, we got, but the others politics, behavioral change, those are really hard. I absolutely agree. These are hard things. I am encouraged to see on both fronts, I do think there are policymakers working on resetting the rules of the road, whether that's, to use an example from the field we're in, the Biden administration passing new regulations a little over a year ago around refrigerant emissions and capping leakage rates at lower levels. So uh, we can force more efficiency into the uh, industry, trying to follow European standards, for example, or the ways in which consumers are starting to embrace protein substitutes and meat alternatives, or changing the way they think about personal consumption and taking the climate impact of the clothing they buy or the meal they consume or the grocery store they frequent. I do think people are starting to change. I look at young people and I'm, I love being around young people because I think they are shaping the future more than any of us. And I don't feel that young anymore as I get closer to 40. But I do think that people are taking these problems seriously at the governance and policy level and at the consumer level. Uh, it's going to require a lot more. And part of the reason I love to talk to other folks about this problem is because I think the more people that think about it and work on it, the more likely we are to solve it. And I get inspired by meeting people who are working on solutions. And also, I feel like celebrating the possibility is much better than sitting back and saying, well, all is for naught, we might as well give up. That, that feels self-perpetuating and in a way doesn't help address the underlying issue. 
I feel that I was one of those people who others pointed out, hey, you're working on this problem. This could be much more significant if you take it to the next level. And I admire all of the mentors and all of the folks in the sustainability movement before Therma and before my work who said, hey, you should be thinking about this. You should be thinking about smart grid. Uh, we've talked to many people in the last six months about grid resilience and grid edge flexibility and ways to make the grids cleaner. And these people have been working on it for 20 years, uh, folks like yourself. So I, I think that as with any you know, historical shift or any big social change, it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to require coordination across public and private and nonprofit actors. It's not going to happen overnight. But I do think we're capable of solving these problems. I think young people want these problems to be solved. I think they really care about the future of the planet and they don't just care about improving their own personal bottom line. And so I think as long as we stay focused and stay committed, we have a chance. On Google Flights, I was excited to see that they added the GHG impact of different flights, which is awesome. What I was sad to see is that the flights that have the least GHG impact often cost the most. So you have to go one way or the other. And I would love to see that align where it was less expensive to take the better carbon alternative. I think that's exactly right. Lee, and I do believe that we are going to see a shift in the economic calculus as the market and markets in general place more and more of a premium on solving the climate crisis. That premium should flow into reducing pricing or increasing brand success for companies that are addressing emissions reduction. And so I do believe that eventually we will put our money where our mouth is at an individual and at a societal level, and we'll pay more for things that either we'll pay more or the markets will price in and the brands will do better and have better success because they are solving for climate in a way that others who are not will face a headwind and will either have to do more to acquire consumers and customers or will be put out of business. And I think that's, that's the only way that markets respond ultimately is through consumer pressure. The more we can shape the market by taking the choice that might seem harder by buying the alternative or by reducing our consumption or by taking a decision based on the GHG emissions, that signal, that individual action will shift the demand curve. And that is what will lead brands and public market investors and thus private market investors and VCs to invest in solutions like Hours. Yeah, I agree. People can do it. They can affect the market, but it'd be really nice to have carbon cost something, some kind of a cost, a tax, just to make those align better, the emissions versus the price. I know there are a lot of folks that are working on that. I think that's a creative area to think about. How do you price into the rules of the road some of these choices? And obviously, we've done that with fossil fuels. We have taxes around energy utilization. We have it in some parts of the world. There's dietary choices uh, that sometimes have taxes associated with them. Mayor Bloomberg in New York City was famous for taking on some of the sugary drinks and uh, the kind of diabetes-causing effects of consumption by putting frameworks into work using tax and subsidy. But it's going to take a while for that kind of stuff to come out globally. Do you think the pandemic has had an impact on your vision of the future of the world? Well, I certainly appreciate community more than ever. And I appreciate, you know, I think we all appreciate what we don't have in a certain sense. There's a kind of human psychological element to this that I believe if we can 
stay resilient as individuals and as families and as communities, we can look at the day when the pandemic resolves or becomes part of a way of living, we can look at it as a kind of reset, a chance to actually ask ourselves, well, what really matters? What, what do I really want to do with my life? And why am I spending my time in the ways I'm spending my time? I think we see that with younger and frankly, many people in the workforce asking themselves questions about where they work and why they work there. I think that shift in terms of how people approach their job and the way they think about their professional and personal self merging, I think that's one of the impacts of the pandemic. Absolutely. And it's forced companies to take more and more effort to ask themselves, well, are we, pro- are we solving problems that matter? And does that resonate with our, our workforce? And can we hire the best people? I also think at a, at a more personal level, I feel more urgency around working on these kinds of problems, around sustainability, around helping to create a more, I, I want to say harmonious, that sounds wishy-washy, but really a, a way of living in coexistence with each other and with a growing planet growing in the form of more people. I would like that because I just had a daughter and she was born last summer and is my first kid. And I think becoming a parent and thinking about what world she's going to inherit and what her life is going to look like forces me to think about, well, what am I doing? Uh, If I want her to be able to travel, if I want her to be able to enjoy nature, biodiversity, clean air, go places I could go. I used to go hiking in the Sierra foothills uh, with my parents. We would go hiking in Huntington Lake and Shaver Lake, they're about 45 minutes from my house. A week after we went hiking with my parents, two and a half years ago, wildfires tore through Huntington and Shaver and destroyed those communities, like literally nine days after we were hiking there. And I think about things like that and wonder, well, how is Arya, my daughter, going to experience the kinds of things I took for granted? And how can we shape our choices, me and my wife, to help improve her chances of having a, the privileges we had? At a very personal level, it's, it's been a clarifying in terms of what really matters. What advice would you give people that want to make a difference? Don't wait to get started. One of the things I've been trying to embrace is to do whatever you can in the moment and not let the idea of what you might want to do one day end up being the story. Really, uh, each of us in our own ways can take action on whatever problems we care about, whether it's climate and sustainability or social justice and equity, or creating the next masterpiece, or, or producing the next amazing play, or whatever the problems that seem salient to you. And for me, it's hard not to think about sustainability just because of the timing in the world. But I do think everyone can take action in their own life. And you don't need lots of resourcing. You don't need to start a startup. You can do it with your personal choices. You can join companies or nonprofits, get involved with activism. If it so moves you, absolutely start a company. That's definitely a powerful way to put your voice into the arena, but take whatever action you can and and get started now. Do you have any questions for me? I would love to know, Lee, what you hope audience members and listeners will take away from these episodes. Like, what, What are you hoping people will come away with? Well, I hope they get excited about the solutions that are out there that might help us survive this. I also want them to know the problem is real. I want them to hear the reasons why it's obvious that climate, the climate is changing and that it matters. And I want them to get some advice about what they could do to make a difference for climate change. And so thank you because you helped out on all of those. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you're doing the work of celebrating 
both the solutions, but also talking about the problem and raising awareness. I think that's wonderful. And I'm also hoping that people want to emulate the people that I'm talking to and realize that anybody can do it. Anybody can become a climate champion and make a difference. Amen to that. Do you have anything else you want to say? It's great to be on today. If you're interested in talking about smart refrigeration or clean cooling or just climate tech and entrepreneurship, I'd love to connect. You can reach out to me directly. My email is monik, M-A-N-I-K at hellotherma.com. Uh, we're hiring. Uh, we've got a dozen open roles in our team. We're hiring remote and in the San Francisco Bay Area. Check us out at hellotherma.com. And we're on social, LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, we'd love to connect. So, so please reach out if you're interested in talking offline. I hope people reach out to you. And with that, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. You were inspired to act because weather event numbers are growing higher and higher. And on your anniversary in Napa and Sonoma, you were surrounded by fire. Where'd the sun go in New Delhi? Weather is starting to unravel. You experienced the changes early because of your international travel. It's getting more difficult to tell what is and isn't actual because we're living in a time that is increasingly post-factual. Cooling causes many damage emissions in our world and in our nation. That's why you're working to improve refrigeration. You couldn't get signals out of the fridge, but then there was euphoria because of advancements in long-range telemetry. It's called LoRa. Initially, the pandemic impacted therma and restaurants badly. It was not good, but then you started ramping up along with takeout food. Temperature, humidity, energy, a remote monitoring application. Therma is a great acronym and name for climate change mitigation. Like in government and law, there's technology neglect to move food management compliance forward. You launch Co-Inspect. He built sensors, studied cooking. Was he also a baker? A person of many talents, your CTO, Andrew Hager. When I asked your advice, something people should know, you said that time is now to go, go, go. Not that people have to start a company but that's a pretty great way to do advocacy. You spoke with so much passion. It was supersonic. Thank you so very much, Monik. <laughs> I don't, I'm speechless. I'm, I'm, I'm rarely speechless. I've never had my life reduced to a rap before. Uh, that's amazing. That is incredible. Incredible. Monik's energy was contagious. It was exciting to talk with him, but I was very nervous when he talked about his anniversary trip to Napa and Sonoma. Personally, I've been near wildfires in San Diego, but having fires burning on both sides of you, that is scary. Hopefully, it won't take an experience that nightmarish for others to understand the impacts of a warming climate. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, please visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Monik said we all didn't have to start companies to help with climate issues. People need to do what works for them to make a difference. But what we all do have in common, and Monik made the point clearly, is that we need to start now to help mitigate climate change.